27 Secrets to Success. The Cheat Codes to Unlocking the Life You've Always Wanted. My name is Anthony Delgado, and I want to thank you for listening to this audiobook. I grew up from a lower middle class family. I'm the son of immigrants. And when you're when you're the child of working class people, you don't necessarily have the right blueprint. You don't necessarily have the right guidance, the right advice. Your parents love you. There's no doubt in that. That's a biological thing. So Chances are, unless unless you come from some extreme circumstances, uh, you have either one or two parents that love you. But the problem is, if they don't have the results that you want, if you want to be a millionaire or a billionaire, and your parents don't have that results, results in that area of their life, then it's really, really hard for you to get financial advice from them. If your parents come from a broken marriage, it's really, really hard to get marital advice from your parents who may not have those same results. And this effect trickles down into all areas of your life. Um, you know, if you grow up in a in a lower middle class neighborhood like I did, you know, a lot of my friends were gangbangers. A lot of my friends sold drugs. You know, I have friends right now who are dead, shot dead in the street. I have friends who are doing life in jail. And their parents didn't come from the right background. Their parents didn't have the right blueprints. And the same way how you look at families like the Carnegie's and the Rockefeller's and the Vanderbilt's. And you see that they have generational wealth, right? The Clintons, the Trumps, the Kardashians. They have generational wealth. Not only the first generation that's wealthy, it's their kids and their kids' kids and their kids' kids' kids. And, you know, a big part of that is the knowledge, the wisdom, the guidance that gets passed on from generation to generation to generation. And these families, they get set up. They get set up like corporations. There's a family trust that's put in place. There's lawyers and accountants and uh, all sorts of advisors that are put in place to ensure that the family is running like a company. And if you come from a neighborhood like me, you just don't have that. My mom was a single mother. She, she did her best. Uh, but she was, you know, often working when I was young. Really wasn't around. I was, I was uh, with a lot of babysitters. Uh, my father was in jail. Uh, my, my father left when I was two years old. He ended up getting incarcerated for life. He's doing life in jail, uh, and that happened when I was five. And I was never really told where he was. They told me, "Hey, he's he's working." Uh, it wasn't until I was a teenager that I found that out. And when I was a teenager, I came to Puerto Rico and I stayed in my grandfather's house. I, I would do that uh, occasionally over the summer. 
And I'm in Puerto Rico. I'm in my grandfather's house. And my brother is telling me all these crazy stories about my father. You know, one time, dad... Dad was uh, on the phone, on a payphone, because that's what they used back in those days. And dad was on a payphone, and it was the middle of the night, and this drug addict just comes up to your dad and grabs his gold chain and tries to yank it off his neck, right? That's what people did back then. They would, they would call, they were called chain snatchers. So this guy comes up to my dad and grabs his gold chain while he's on the phone, and my dad's wearing this long leather trench coat. And my dad just looks at him in the eyes. Gives him this dirty look. And as soon as the guy sees the look in my father's eyes, he knows that he grabbed the wrong guy's chain. He lets go of my dad's chain. He doesn't try to rob him anymore. He changes his plan. Uh, but it was too little too late. And as the guy runs away, uh, my dad pulls out a pistol and proceeds to shoot the man and, and murder him to death in the streets and as he's shooting the man uh, he was wearing a down uh, jacket, winter jacket and the feathers from the winter jacket start just uh, going into the street like a pigeon or a turkey or a chicken and I'm like wow that's pretty intense right, I, I never heard any stories about that about my father, you know for me he was just some guy that was always working and then another story about, uh, you know, another time your dad had a really bad temper and uh, a guy drove past him on the street. The guy drove past him kind of fast and my dad just pulled out the pistol, started shooting towards the car. Um, another time the police were trying to arrest my father and they're on a one-way street and the cop car is blocking the one-way street. My father kind of has nowhere to go. Um, so he gets out of his car and uh, pulls out a Tommy pistol with, like, this banana clip like you'd see in an old Western movie. And as soon as the cops see this big, giant machine gun, the cops change their mind because back then there were no cameras, no drones, uh, no task force. Uh, you know, all the cops have is is a small, you know, eight-shooter pistol or whatever. And as soon as the cops see this big, giant machine gun, the cops decide to uh, get back in their cars. They say, whoa, 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 it's it's fine, it's okay, you, you can go. And uh, they turn off their lights and they back up the car and they actually just let my dad go free because they didn't want to have a shootout with that giant, giant weapon. So... Story after story, all these crazy stories, uh, you know, I could probably, um, it'd be a different book, the stories of my father, right? Um, and I'm thinking, wow, this isn't the father that I, that I thought I knew. And then my brother tells me, and that's where your father is now. That's why he's in jail for the rest of his life, because he's a really bad man. And I remember listening to a song by Biggie Smalls, the notorious B.I.G. at that time. And the lyrics go, I'm a piece of shit, it's not hard to fucking tell. And I remember listening to those lyrics over and over and over again and thinking that somehow, by some twist of fate, who my father was, what he did for a living, the choices he made, the mistakes he made, somehow had an impact on me. 
Somehow I was responsible for those things. Right? And it took me a really, really long time. I mean, in high school I was selling pot because uh, I thought that was the thing to do. I thought that was what I was supposed to do. Um, and, you know, looking back on it, I probably didn't make these connections right away, but looking back on it, I was a really good kid up until 12 or 13. Uh, really good, really studious. Uh, you know, I didn't necessarily get straight A's, but I definitely was a much more innocent kid. I was in the, in the church, heavily involved in the church. And, um, you know, again, we grew up from a, um, lower middle class neighborhood, um, but I was definitely a good kid. And after finding that out, started selling pot in high school. And it was really, really confronting to me. It was really, really confusing to me at the time uh, to find all this stuff out. And I say all that because role models are extremely important. You know, we're, we're going to get into the 27 secrets um, in these next chapters. But... It's really, really important for you to realize that your role models, the circle that you surround yourself with, is definitive. Success leaves clues. And there are so many, so many freaking um, people in my life that I need to cut off quicker. Um, so many influences. Influences from music, right? Look at Look at rappers. Uh, I, I grew up listening to rap. I don't listen to much of it anymore, but, um, I grew up listening to 50 Cent and, uh, Jay-Z and, uh, Rick Ross and Drake and Lil Wayne and all of these, uh, musical artists who, you know, at the time were really popular, but when I look back at the lyrics, you know, they were glorifying drugs, glorifying, uh, being abusive to women, uh, glorifying uh, an entire lifestyle, which a lot of them were not even living, you know, Hey, I'm driving in a Rolls Royce and I'm selling drugs. But meanwhile, that Rolls Royce is, uh, most likely rented and most likely paid for from selling music, not selling drugs. So there was this whole lifestyle that's personified, um, and kind of pushed on our generation. I'm a millennial and you know, the millennial generation, we were inundated with, you know, this message of, uh, selling drugs, you know, this, uh, modern Scarface persona. And truth of the matter is a lot of that's not true. And as soon as I realized that these things weren't true, uh, I quickly started changing my circle of influence, you know, um, started cutting off a lot of old people, uh, started listening to podcasts, listening to audiobooks like this, um, reading books, and, uh, when I was 21 years old, I started a store. I opened my first store. I started my first business online digitally, uh, when I was 18. And then when I was 21, I opened a store. That was my, that was my dream was to open this store. And I sold clothing and sneakers and, um, and DVDs and CDs and, all sorts of all sorts of fun stuff, but it was mostly clothing and, and sneakers. And we even had an art gallery in the in the store, and it was in the middle of a community uh, that was ridden with drugs, ridden with crime. 
And before you know it, I had gang members on my door. I had gang members who wanted to become my business partner. <laughs> so all these crazy things, all these crazy circumstances that I could have never foreseen. And I ended up having to sell the store because gang members were coming in and robbing the store. Uh, that, you know, when I refused to be their business partner, they, you know, they came in and, and burglarized the store and all sorts of insane things. And it comes back down to your circle of influence. So I ended up selling the store, sold the store to this Jewish kid. Um, but before I sold the store, I got approached by a customer, right? So a customer comes into the store one day. And he asks to uh, try on some sneakers. So he tries on some sneakers. And he says, hey, I'm a DJ. Uh, he's an African-American guy. He's like, I'm a DJ. I just moved into town. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to get some weed. I'm, I'm trying to smoke some weed. And do you know anyone around? But, you know, I don't have any local dealers. I, I just want to smoke a joint before I go to work. Uh, do you know anyone? So I end up giving him uh, someone's number, another customer from the store. I'm like, hey, uh, here's this guy I know. He sells pot. Give him a call. So at that point in my life, I had I had given up selling weed. I had made the decision, the very conscious decision, that it wasn't worth it. It wasn't a good business decision. I think marijuana is an incredible plan. Um, but I had made the decision early on that... This is not something that is profitable. This is not something that's smart, right? I don't want to be uh, selling marijuana or selling drugs when the repercussions to that, when you get caught, uh, and and I had gotten caught. I, the first time I was arrested for selling pot, I think it was 14, 15. There's all these fees, there's all these, uh, I have to pay for lawyers, and uh, I get in trouble, and my mom cries, and all these negative things happen. Um, and meanwhile, when I was selling DVDs, when I was selling sunglasses, selling all these other things, uh, not only was it more profitable, right? I could buy a pair of sunglasses for a dollar and sell them online for $50. Uh, I could buy a pair of jeans for $10, sell, sell them online for 300 uh, so, so not only was it way more profitable than selling drugs, like selling drugs, maybe I was doubling my money, probably less, right? Um, but it was also much more safer and there were no negative ramifications and I could build a business, right? So I, I decided to stop selling drugs when I was like maybe 18, 19. It's like, hey, I'm getting too old for this. Um, and then when I was 21, I, I opened my, my in-person store. So... The guy comes in and he asks me, hey, do you know anyone uh, that's selling weed? I wasn't selling weed at the time. I give him someone's phone number. He's like, okay, thanks. The guy leaves. He comes back a week later. Same question. Hey, you know, on my way to work, uh, I I want to smoke some weed. Do you, do you have anybody? He said, well, I gave you the other guy's number. Did you call him? What's going on with him? Oh, yeah, I called him. He's uh, not answering the phone, and I got to go to work. He's like, do you uh, do you have any weed I can buy? 
I said, hey, I have a little bit of my, my own weed, my own personal marijuana. I was still smoking occasionally at the time. Hey, I have a little bit of my own personal marijuana. Uh, if you want, we can smoke together before work. Ah, oh, bro, I really have to go to work. I'm I'm sorry. Uh, you know, can can I just buy whatever you have off of you? And, uh, and then you can call the guy and, and you can get some more. So I say, all right, sure, no problem. Here, I, I do it. It gives me $10. Comes back a third time a week later. Hey, bro, do you know where I could uh, get some get some weed, get some marijuana? And I'm like, dude, this is the third time you're coming here. You haven't bought one pair of sneakers. What's going on? This isn't a drug spot. Please, do me a favor. Don't come back to my store anymore. Right? And... Mind you, it's it's a crazy neighborhood. This neighborhood, there's Bloods, there's Crips, there's Latin Kings, there's Nietas. Uh, you know, I had one of my customers came into my store with blood on his shirt because they were in a shootout. Like, all sorts of crazy things happened in this neighborhood. Um, so it was a struggle. It was really hard to um, to kind of stay out of the riffraff, right? So, but I tell this guy off and I tell him, listen, bro, don't come to the store anymore. Um, unless you want to buy some sneakers. So I don't hear from the guy. Six months goes by, um, and then the store ends up getting burglarized by, by gang members, not once, but twice. Uh, twice in like, you know, a two, three week span. Uh, so at this point, I don't really feel safe in the store. Um, you know, thankfully, uh, although some of the altercations were physical, there were no, there was no weapons involved. Uh, so... I didn't want to wait for a third time as a charm. I'll put it like that. Uh, the first time the store was burglarized, I wasn't there. The second time I was there, and we, I got into a scuffle with like five or six gang members tried to jump me, and uh, it was crazy. It was like seriously some movie stuff. Like eventually, I think we need to make a movie out of this stuff. And so I decided to sell the business. Um, I sold the business for a multiple of what it cost me to to start. And, and I was happy. I got a huge check. Uh, it was the first time I had a six-figure check in my life. And it was incredible. And then I just moved the business back online. Uh, I let him run the store. And I moved the business back online. And a few weeks later, I get a phone call in the middle of the night. Or actually early in the morning. It's like 6 a.m. And the phone call says, hey, sir, uh, this is uh, Detective so-and-so, and you're under arrest. And I'm like, under arrest? I'm sleeping. How, how am I under arrest? What was I doing in my sleep? And he's like, well, you're under arrest, and uh, I can't tell you much. All I can tell you is you need to come here, or we're going to lock up your mother. We're in your mother's house, because that's the address on my ID, right? It's like, uh, we're in your mother's house, and you need to come. Or you're gonna, we're gonna lock up your mom. So I tell him, all right, listen, don't lock up my mom, okay? I don't know what this is about because I was sleeping, but uh, don't lock up my mom. Where's the closest police station? And I'll meet you in the police station. So he gives me the address. He leaves. Um, I end up calling a lawyer. The the lawyer calls them. Uh, we negotiate a time for me to turn myself in. 
And then I go in Monday morning. This kind of happened over the weekend. And Monday morning I go and I turn myself in and get my fingerprints and find out what this is about. I have no idea. So I asked my lawyer, I'm like, well, what is this about? It's like, oh, it's a drug charge. So I'm thinking some kingpin, some big drug dealer with, you know, tons of drugs and cocaine probably got busted and then dropped my name and is like lying and saying that I'm somehow involved in some big drug operation. Come to find out the guy that came into my store and, uh, I sold him two bags of fucking pot. Uh, and I, honestly, I didn't sell him the two bags of pot. I, uh, one, the first bag of pot, I gave him somebody's phone number and the second bag I offered to smoke with him. And this freaking guy, uh, coerced me and entrapped me into, uh, selling it to him. Uh, but needless to say, that interaction that I just described uh, led to a conspiracy charge. Now, mind you, this is two small dime bags of marijuana, less than two grams. But that interaction led to me being charged with conspiracy and led to me doing over a year in prison, in state prison. And, you know, that experience was incredible. It was life-changing. And, you know, not necessarily in a negative way. Um, I think the criminal justice system is broken. I think uh, it is not designed for rehabilitation. But I believe in the power of the human being. And I used it as the most not only rehabilitative, but I would even say transformational experience in my entire life. I read several books, several autobiographies from uh, millionaires and billionaires and successful people. I studied, I wrote, I journaled, I worked out, and I focused on what can I do so that this never, ever, ever happens to me ever again. And I was young at the time. At the at the time of the indictment, I was only 21 years old. And I didn't want to go to jail. I'd never been in jail before for more than you know a couple couple of days or or something, little slap on the wrist here and there for. Uh, for misbehaving, but I'd never been to jail for a prolonged period of time. Definitely never been to prison. Prison is like where they send the murderers and all the crazy people. And they wanted to give me three... No, actually the first offer was five years in jail. Five years in prison. And I was like, this is crazy. This is two dime bags of weed. Like, how can this happen? Um, but, you know, they say if you don't... Uh, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. So I went back and forth negotiating, uh, ended up negotiating a sentence uh, from five years down to three years, down to what's called a three with a one, uh, which means one year in prison and then another two years on like supervision on like a parole program. And I said, great, that's the best deal. Sign me up. And, uh, and then when it was time to turn myself in, because I had bailed out, um, when it was time to turn myself in and go to jail, I skipped town. 
And uh, I actually moved into the suburbs of upstate New York. And I started and continued my online business. So I continued selling stuff on eBay. Uh, I ended up creating an online magazine that ended up getting millions and millions of uh, readers every month. And uh, then I started monetizing that with Google Advertising. Then I also started doing consulting. And I consulted a company called Cranium Fitteds. Uh, we took it from a non-existent brand to forty thousand revenue, forty thousand dollars in revenue in the first uh, in the second month, and three million dollars in revenue the next year. And this is a brand that did not exist before. And I did all that while I had warrants. I was like a digital nomad on the run uh, with warrants. And Google was sending me checks. Was earning six figures from Google. Uh, earning like an additional six figures from consulting. And I had no choice. I had to make it work. Uh, because at the time I was scared to get a regular job. I was scared that people would find out. They would find me. Uh, so for about five years I lived in upstate New York. As a digital nomad uh, on the run. <laughs> and you know I was scared. I was scared shitless of going to jail. I didn't want to. Um so I lived in upstate New York. I worked out every day. I got in some of the best shape of my life. And I just prepared for the um, the thing that I knew was coming. And uh, eventually we threw a birthday party. And uh, the cops came to the birthday party because the music was too loud. And I ended up uh, getting getting arrested. They they asked whose house it was. I raised my hand and I kind of knew when I raised my hand. This was in a room of maybe 20, 30 people. Uh, I knew when I raised my hand uh, what, what the repercussions of that would be. It wasn't just getting in trouble for the loud music. Um, and yeah, they ran my name and the warrants came up and ended up getting extradited from New York State. I was locked up in New York State for 90 days and then they shipped me off uh, to the state of New Jersey to finish up these charges. And at that time of my life, I mean, it was pretty incredible. The entire time I was locked up, I was getting checks from Google. So I was uh, what they call jail rich. I was getting, you know, checks every month. And then I was able to buy books. So while I was in jail, I was just buying books. I would send a list to my parents of the books that I wanted and I was literally able to have an unlimited supply of books and you know there's no computer in there but I had a typewriter and I had a number two pencil and a pen and a paper and I was able to write so I was just reading and writing and reading and writing and learning and planning and plotting and scheming and how can this never ever 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 happen to me ever again and, you know, I had made some substantial amounts of money before that. But when I came home, it was incredible. The guy that I started the multi-million dollar business with, uh, he showed up to my release trial. He pulled out all the money in his wallet. He gave it to me. He said, bro, thank you so much. And you're a good guy. And, and this is all going to turn around. And in the first few weeks of working with me again, he was like, bro, it's like you went to college. You came out and you got smarter. You got smarter. And one of the other things it did is it humbled me 
it made me really appreciate life. I remember the first time I bit a cheeseburger, I almost cried because I hadn't had a flavorful food in over a year. Um, it just made me appreciate life, appreciate all the little things. Um, and it also gave me tremendous perspective. You know, there's a cycle of prison recidivization where people go to jail and it's a revolving door. They keep going back, keep going back, keep going back. And it's such a terrible place. I mean, why would anybody want to go back there? Um, and I don't think it's because they want to. I think it's because it's all they know. And, you know, the purpose for me to writing this book is to give people a way out, to give people another option, to give people the secrets that I've learned from reading countless books, from then going on and working with multimillionaires, you know, collaborating with people like Ty Lopez, uh, like both multi-billionaire Brock Pierce, uh, like multi-millionaire Peter Schiff, uh, like working with Gerard Adams, who sold his company for $50 million, uh, like, you know, Eric Thomas, E.T. the Hip Hop Preacher, like Tony Robbins, all these amazing people that I've uh, had the pleasure of calling business partners and mentors and collaborators over the past few years, if you follow my career at all. Um, I learned so much from them. And you know what? A lot of billionaires that you've never heard of, too. You know, I'm, I'm dropping the big names uh, right now, and I could probably drop a hundred more through, you know, the podcast that we host where we interview people and the event series where we bring people down to Puerto Rico to speak. But a lot of the billionaires and millionaires that I know, a lot of the most influential people, they don't have books. They don't have podcasts. They don't share any of the knowledge except with the people that hang out with them. Uh, I have one billionaire mentor who, uh, you know, he doesn't want me to say his name, but he moved down to Puerto Rico to enjoy tax benefits and I hung out with him for the first couple of months that he was here and I helped him get all his paperwork so that he could uh, get his tax benefits. Uh, the law is called Act 20. It's, it's really incredible. You should look it up. And he taught me so many things, so many things about business, so many things about leadership, uh, so many things about money, right? There's, there's secrets about money that people don't even realize. You know, you wonder why you're poor. You wonder why you know, generations are poor, and then you wonder why Donald Trump can go bankrupt. He can be opposite of poor. You know, Donald Trump talks about walking down the street and being millions of dollars in debt and realizing that a homeless person technically has more money than him because Donald Trump was millions of dollars in debt. These guys go bankrupt all the time. They go zero up, belly up all the time. But the difference is they bounce right back. And why is that? It's because they operate differently. It's because they have cheat codes. So the whole premise of this book is that life is a video game. Life is a game. And just like any game, there's secrets, there's shortcuts, and there's cheat codes. So in this book, we're going to go through the 27 cheat codes that have helped me transform my life. 27 life hacks to give you a new perspective and let you live the life that you've always wanted. Enjoy.